0: Friday, March fourth, twenty eleven. Looking forward to the weekend. I think we're gonna get snow too. Huh? <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of like ready for spring now. But I still like the snow. Oh, and did you hear Rob Bell's? book has supposedly been, the date's been pushed up to March 15th. Yeah, they're going to release it on March 15th, the Ides of March. That's the day when Caesar was um, murdered. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we have to do the comparative work, and uh, it's 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 a lot. It's a job. (laughs) The reason why is this: is that um, when it comes to discernment work, you actually have to listen and read a lot of things. Uh, you need to familiarize yourself with who the people are that are saying what. Uh, you need to track down sources. You need to make sure that you are understanding what people are saying in context. And uh, you got to make sure also that when you're doing your discernment work, you don't have any dangling participles. Yeah, you don't. You don't want there to. Uh, you don't want people to. Well, to. You know, basically, be lumped in with the bad guys when they shouldn't be lumped in the bat with the bad guys. It's 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 a lot of work. It's that's all I can say. And it, it's a labor of love. I enjoy doing it, and uh, and I, I look forward to being able to do it for years to come. Anyway, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, like I was saying at the uh, top of the uh, program here, uh, I heard rumor. I, I haven't been able to track it down to see if it's actually true. But the rumor is, is that Rob Bell's book uh, that they're going to move it up from being published at the end of the month to being released on the Ides of March, which is the fifteenth of March if you're familiar with uh, Shakespeare's famous uh, play Julius Caesar I I was, I was wondering if there was some kind of significance there because I've uh, likened uh, Rob Bell's gospel to the stick it to the Caesar man gospel you know he was sticking it to Caesar and so I mean if the 15th of March well that was the day that uh, the uh, Roman Senate killed Julius Caesar right there I mean just stabbed him to death but uh yeah uh it's, maybe there is some kind of significance so i don't know anyway i feel like i'm wandering at the moment but uh let's let's talk about what we're going to talk about on the uh program today uh ingrid schleider has uh updated her blog post and i think it's important to uh for me to read her updates so that uh you all can read it because she's taken the time to clarify what she meant on her blog post and i think that's great and we'll take a look at what she's uh, written there. Uh, we've got a, a a news story regarding Bishop Eddie Long. Apparently they're losing members, and uh, rather interesting. We'll take a look at that. Um, and then we've got a couple of news stories that I want to get to, uh, one having to do with um, the Pope not blaming the Jews for the death of Christ. Uh, and then also we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the uh, latest uh, article that was posted by Miroslav Volf over at the Huffington Post with the uh, that asked the question, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Now, if you're not familiar with who Miroslav Volf is, Miroslav Volf... Uh, pretty much, uh, he's a famous uh, theologian, kind of from the Moltmannian school, and if I am not mistaken, uh, he's one of the academic mentors of uh, emergent author and theologian in residence over at Solomon's Porch, Tony Jones. And uh, and so we're going to want to uh, take a look at uh, what Miroslav Volf uh, has to say uh, regarding whether or not Christians and Muslims worship the same God, and then in hour number two today, we are going to uh take a look at um uh, lecture number 4 in the uh, hell series put out by Ted Donnelly you're not going to want to miss that you know and i'm thinking you know even if they move up the date of rob bell's book from the uh the end of march to the 15th uh, to the ides of march you know, kill julius caesar day um that, you know i'm pretty certain that we're going to have everything buttoned up uh on you know cuz cuz here's the deal i mean um, unless Rob Bell is, has got a new revelation from God and that, you know, we've got the, you know, some kind of epistle of Mars Hill, uh, or the epistle of Bell or something like that. Uh, the, uh, uh the, hmm, I don't know, would it would be the, the epistle to the churches in Grand Rapids. I'm, I'm still working on trying to figure out what this epistle would, uh, t- anyway, unless Rob Bell actually has new revelation from God and it, it gets tacked into the canon. I mean, the canon has been closed for millennia and, um, that being the case, I mean, yeah, I understand that the uh, that uh, Harper Collins has been trying to really, you know, ramp up the uh, the controversy regarding the book so that you know all of the uh, fighting will lead to people buying the book. I mean, I mean, seriously, you got people who who are who are vehemently against Rob Bell's teaching; they're going to go buy the book, and then you got people who love Rob Bell; they're going to go buy the book. They're gonna they're going to be laughing all the way to the bank. But the thing is, is that even when that book comes out. I mean I mean sir, I mean Rob Bell has nothing to add to this conversation. Really? I mean at best all he can do is affirm what the scripture says and at worst he's going to deny what the scripture says and if he denies it then he's a heretic and that's kind of stupid. So, you know, I mean, yay, I'm glad that we've got we get to talk about hell, but I mean you know with the four lectures that we we've played here on the program this week and uh, the uh, the sermon review that I did earlier on uh, the love wind sermon i mean i i the way i look at it is i don't think rob bell ha- really has anything significant that he can add to the conversation because well um you know the bible was closed a long long time ago so just you know, just my thoughts. Anyway, <laughs> so with that, that's what we're going to talk about on today's program. Let's dive into the program proper. I do not have music for the segment, but um, I'm going to be reading uh, Ingrid Schlieder from uh, the Crosstalk Blog, uh, uh, radio host of uh, the Crosstalk uh, radio program. One of the uh, she's a, she's not the singular host, but she's one of the hosts of the uh, Crosstalk radio program has updated her blog post, and I'm very happy and thankful for her update. And uh, let's read what she said because she's actually taken some time to clarify her position. Which, by the way, her position was far from clear when she originally posted her blog post. But here's what she said. I'd like to clarify one final time exactly what this post represents. I have had this already over the last two days in the comments section. But some, that would be me, apparently neglected to read it or have chosen to ignore it you know actually um here's the deal is that i'm a blogger okay and um you know so he, when i when i want to make a point or i want to make a statement and um i make uh, i make the statement on the blog post and then in the discussion that follows i mean you know, you got people that the, the people get to kind of debate back and forth what's going on but if i've said something unclear in the blog post itself it's not the responsibility of the you know of somebody who read what was said and and apparently didn't understand what the blogger said to try to divine it from the comments and the discussion that takes place in the comments section. Um, if there's uh, if something's been said wrong in the blog post itself, it's up to the author of that blog post to clarify that position at the front end of it. It you know for instance, I mean. Yeah, y'all ever been to the Huffington Post? I mean, yeah, I can't particularly. That's now I'll tell you what. Scratch that. You ever all been to the Christian Post website? They have a comment section for all of the different um, all of the different uh, stories that are posted there at the Christian Post. And so, um, you know, and you know the people who write there, Michelle Vu and others. Um, if you know, they actually post the news there, and then you can discuss the news in the comment section. Blogs are kind of the same way. So uh it let's say Michelle Vu wrote a post over at the Christian Post. She wrote a news story and she said something that wasn't very clear, and as a result of what she wrote in the news story, she created the impression of something that she didn't intend to, you know, create. She would then need to write a retraction, right? That's how that's how this works. I mean, y'all ever read retractions like at the Washington Post or other news agencies? It's a common practice because reporters as well as bloggers are human beings and sometimes they communicate things that isn't exactly accurate or what should have been conveyed. and so they write retractions. But when they write the retractions, they don't write the retractions in the comment section uh, you know, on the website. They write them at the front of the thing. So, I'm going to take Ingrid's update as a form of a retraction or and a clarification. So I think that's the right way to do it, and it's occurred at the right place that it should have occurred to begin with, on the front page at the as part of the blog post itself. She says, "I okay." She says, um, "This photo, the photo of Michael Horton and uh, Rick Warren, is not about Michael Horton being a heretic or a false teacher." Two things I have never called him. Thank you for the clarification. She says, I'm grateful for his early work in particular, which opened my eyes to the evangelical disaster. This photo is about Rick Warren making full use of otherwise sound teachers for public relations purposes. You know, uh, i got to say something, and that is is that um, this photograph was published on... Michael Horton's blog, originally. At least that's how I remember it. So, you know, I, okay, all right, so she uh, anyway, she says, um, Rick Warren craves two things, credibility and influence. I agree with her. That's exactly what Rick Warren uh, craves. Uh, he had, that's he, uh, Rick Warren, has worked tirelessly to gain both in nearly, uh, to gain both, that would be credibility and influence, in nearly every sphere of religion in America. Yep. And the Reformed world is no exception. True, true, true. She says says, this photograph, quote, says it all as Michael Horton, well-intentioned as he was, having just spoken good and true things at Warren's conference— agrees to be photographed with his arms around one of the greatest spiritual wolves of our day, a bust of Calvin between them. I maintain without hesitation that this photo visually demonstrates what Warren is doing in the Reformed world. This photograph is about Warren's agenda, not Horton's intentions or beliefs. Ingrid then goes on to state, As long as Reformed leaders, authors, and teachers are willing to cooperate at any level with Rick Warren, they are lending credibility to someone who is teaching a false gospel. To this, I could not disagree more. (laughs) You know, listen, it takes far more than a photograph or speaking at an event held at Saddleback to, quote, cooperate with Rick Warren or lend credibility to him. Um, I go back to my point yesterday with uh, Reagan and Gorbachev. If we were to use this logic, we would have to basically say that it was wrong of Ronald Reagan to be seen in a photograph being chummy with uh, uh, Soviet Premier Gorbachev because he was by doing that, he was lending credibility to communism. Let me put it a different way. Using this logic we would have we would have to basically condemn our Lord Jesus Christ because well, by going and having dinner with tax collectors and you know and having prostitutes and that he was lending credibility to uh the Roman Empire, or because Jesus ate with Pharisees who were false teachers that by eating with them and being seen at their homes that Jesus was lending credibility to the false teaching and legalistic teachings of the Pharisees. You know, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Credibility comes when somebody gives credibility, and it's not done via a photograph, it's done via words. Now, that being said, there is somebody in the Reformed camp who has actually lent credibility to Rick Warren and ought not to have. And that person is John Piper. And he didn't do it by being willing to be photographed by, uh, you, know, w- you know, with uh, Rick Warren. It's because John Piper actually put out a video where he, in the video, said that Rick Warren was a sound and orthodox guy. John Piper has actually lent credibility to Rick Warren by doing that, and he really ought not to have done that. That that was just a complete and utter catastrophically bad thing for him to do. Foolish at best. But <clears throat> Michael Horton did not lend credibility to rick warren and the photograph doesn't give warren any credibility because michael horton hasn't said boo in a positive way about anything that warren believes teaches or confesses all the photograph did was capture a snapshot a moment in time when rick warren was interviewing and having a conversation with michael horton and at the end of it they took a photograph together By the way, if I were to contact David Sean, who is uh, Rick Warren's chief of staff, I know for a fact that photographs were taken when Bob DeWay and I met with Rick Warren. There there were people who were photographing the moment. Now, I don't personally have the photographs. I didn't take any myself. And I didn't bring my camera with me because I just didn't really feel in the photogenic mood when I was uh, having my meeting with Rick Warren. But the point of the matter is this, is that you could easily... Saddleback Church could easily provide photographs of myself and Rick Warren, of myself and Bob DeWay and Rick Warren. And at the end of my conversation with Rick Warren, okay, um, Rick Warren announced to me that he wanted to give me a hug because he says that he's a big hugger. And so Rick Warren hugged me. And you know, and I kind of, sort of hugged him back, but you know, but the point of the matter is, is that had somebody snapped a photograph at that time and put it out on the web, I mean, there, there could, I, I don't know if somebody did or didn't, but the reality is, there could be photographic evidence of Rick Warren giving me a hug, but that doesn't in any way amount to me giving him credibility. Yes, Rick Warren is a heretic. Rick Warren is a flat-out Pelagian, Bible-twisting heretic. He What he teaches is absolutely heresy. It's not biblical Christianity. And his methodologies all flow from his bad doctrine and his bad teaching— That's true. And yes, there is somebody in the reformed camp, John Piper, who has lent credibility to Rick Warren by verbally giving it to him. But it's not correct to say that just simply cooperating or showing up at an event that's held at Saddleback that that amounts to lending credibility to Rick Warren, and for those people out there who who somehow turn around and say, "I actually read comments that you know that where people were basically equating speaking at Saddleback as sharing the pulpit with Rick Warren oy, 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 oy. <clears throat> Sharing the pulpit with Rick Warren would require you to actually preach a sermon at Saddleback Church during the church service. If you've ever been to the Saddleback campus, uh, Saddleback—it's kind of—it's—it's it's not just a church facility; it's a conference center. I mean, it's a, it's a whole. It, there's a lot going on there at Saddleback. And lots of different groups actually rent out the use of the Saddleback facilities for their uh, for their events. I remember when we lived in Southern California, my my youngest daughter she was uh, she sings in choir and she, you know she's a singer, and uh, she actually uh, you know as part of her uh, the school that she was going to they had a big district singing choir event thing and they rented Saddleback for that event. And so uh, my daughter actually sang at Saddleback Church. And so the thing is, is that it's, it wasn't during a church service. My daughter didn't participate in worship at Saddleback Church, nor did she listen to a sermon preached by Rick Warren. And there was, there was no pulpit set up, but they were using Saddleback's facility for the event. So you know, we've got to be really, 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 really careful on uh, and how we handle these things that we don't handle them in such a way that we shoot the innocent okay or we uh, or that the good guys get shot at via friendly fire whether it's you know intentional whether it's accidental whether it's a result of dangling participles it doesn't matter the point of the matter is is that it takes more than a photograph to lend credibility to Rick Warren Anyway, let me continue. She says with the co-opting of John Piper, Warren has achieved success that he could only have dreamed of a few years ago, as goes John Piper, so goes his followers. I hope you're wrong there, uh Ingrid. I I I truly truly hope you're wrong there. Um you know, at least what I've heard from some of the people on the inside over at uh, Desiring God is is that a lot of his followers are not too keen and hip. On uh, on the fact that uh, Piper has lent such you know v- strong vocal credibility to uh, Rick Warren, and there apparently at least from what I've heard, there seems to be some dissension in the ranks uh, about uh, whether or not it was really truly a wise thing to hold the the next Desiring God conference at Saddleback. That being the case, it's, uh, l- listen, the Desiring God conference is coming up, and it's going to be at Saddleback this year, and um we. We've got to be real careful here. We And I'll, let me explain why. Okay, number one, it's absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt true that John Piper has, given his, has lent his credibility to Rick Warren. That's absolutely pff, on the record. There's no denying it, okay? I completely disagree with John Piper, and I disagree uh, that I, I don't even think that's a smart thing to do. Now, that being the case is that, I'm, I'm pretty certain that John Piper had some say in the fact that this year's Desiring God conference is going to be held at Saddleback, which I don't think is a wise thing to do. That being said, um, I don't get a vote. Okay, I, the, la- <laughs> the last time I talked to any of the Desiring God guys, it was via email, and none of them have emailed me to ask what I thought uh, as to whether or not they should have the conference at Saddleback. Had they emailed me and asked me, I would have said, you know, I don't think that's a smart idea. But since they didn't email me and ask me, and and I didn't get a vote, um, the decision was made without my input, and uh, I don't get to do sour grapes about it, okay? Just don't get to do sour grapes about it. It is what it is. That being said, um, the contents of what is said at Desiring God is the thing that I will focus in on and not so much about the venue yeah i i don't think the venue is wise but i'm not i'm not going to for instance okay if somebody comes to the conclusion that uh, albert Moeller is somehow in the wrong because he was one of the featured speakers at this year's Desiring God conference at Saddleback Church, that that proves that he's compromised, or that from moving forward, that we have to look at Albert Mueller with suspicion, or R.C. Sproul, or uh, you know C.J. Mahaney, or you know any of those guys, you know, you know, or or, or even MacArthur. I don't even know if MacArthur would go to show up. But if, if if the Desiring God conference has the normal cadre of guys speaking at it. Okay, and it's at Saddleback Church, you don't get to throw them all under the bus or say that by showing up and speaking that they're lending their credibility to Rick Warren. You know, no, they would have to actually lend their credibility verbally to Rick Warren the way Piper did. Now that being said, I I think it's going to be rather interesting to see what's being what what is going to be said at the desiring God conference. And that's always the indicator as to whether or not somebody is sound. Or not, or whether somebody is lending credibility to somebody or not. It's their words. It's what they're doing. It's what they're saying. Yeah, You get what I'm saying? Yeah, so anyway, that being the case, just taking a photograph with Rick Warren does not lend your credibility to him. So anyway, Ingrid goes on to say, anyone who characterizes my post as claiming that Michael Horton is a heretic or a false teacher like Warren is lying and deliberately mischaracterizing what I have written here. Actually, Ingrid, to say that I said that you said that Michael Horton was a heretic is to mischaracterize what I said. Go back and listen to yesterday's program. I never said that you said that Michael Horton was a heretic. In fact, really, what this is, is that you, in your blog post, have pretty much made Michael Horton into a bridger. And a bridger is a thing that you've invented, it's not a biblical teaching, it's not a biblical category. And the problem is, is that you have taken it upon yourself to warn the church about Bridgers. Bridgers are people who apparently are orthodox. They're unwittingly lending credibility to Rick Warren. And you have made it clear in public on Jan Markell's radio program this week, of all places, that you feel that it is your job to warn the church about these so-called Bridgers, here's what you said on the matter.
1: Rick Warren is a deceiver. He is a false teacher. And anyone who links arms with Rick Warren must also be warned about.
0: Yeah. Did you hear that? You said that Rick Warren is a deceiver and anyone who links arms with Rick Warren must also be warned about. That is exactly why I've taken you to task regarding this blog post. Because you've lumped Michael Horton into your imaginary, fictitious, non-biblical, completely invented category of people that need the church needs to be warned about entitled Bridgers. Yet, the only evidence that you gave that Michael Horton was a Bridger was the photograph. You took it out of context, and you never even mentioned any of the things that horton said at that conference or the things he reported regarding his interview and discussion with rick warren you just said anyone who links arms with rick warren is somebody that the church needs to be warned against and on jan markell's program you go on to further explain what you mean by that here you
1: go there is a kind of arrogance in some sectors of the reformed faith that somehow because they emphasize doctrine that they are not susceptible to the spiritual seduction the enemy is not that stupid okay uh, he works in different areas different denominational leanings different kinds of camps within evangelicalism he has specific methods that he employs specific people who sadly have been allowed have allowed themselves to be used
0: so Using what you've said, we have to conclude that Michael Horton has unwittingly allowed himself to be used by the devil. Despite the fact that Michael Horton boldly critiqued Warrenism at Saddleback. And made it clear that in his conversation with Rick Warren that they discussed their differences in a spirit of mutual challenge doesn't sound like Michael Horton was giving any credibility to Rick Warren at all. But according to this fictitious, newly invented category, which, by the way, funny enough, you said Dan Kimball's a bridger too. So Dan Kimball and Michael Horton are both bridgers. But you go on in jam Markell's program to explain a little bit more about bridging. Here's what you said.
1: And I am seeing a frontal attack a multi-pronged attack within the reformed faith where warrenism i call it warrenism is having an increasing and growing influence using some key people in key places whether they be bloggers or authors or bible teachers that are nationally known and trusted
0: that would include michael horton
1: they don't say anything themselves that's heretical or heterodox so you cannot finger anything that they have said themselves
0: like michael horton who's never said anything Heterodox, heretical, or anything of the sort, right? That's pretty much, yeah, that's what I've been saying. But it's more than that because Michael Horton, when he was at Saddleback, he actually took Rick Warren's ideas and methodologies to task. But, okay, well, let's continue.
1: But they are allowing themselves to become a bridge, a bridge between biblical Christianity and the apostate false teachers within evangelicalism, the wolves that are already here, the ravening wolves.
0: So uh, Michael Horton has allowed himself to become a bridge to Rick Warren, despite the fact that when you put the photograph back in context, it's clear that not only was he not a bridge, the best way you can describe Michael Horton's posture towards Rick Warren's ideas at Saddleback is that Michael Horton was a roadblock
1: that uh, Paul warns about in Acts chapter 20. And so that's why bridgers, I call them bridgers, because whether they know it or whether they are unwittingly being used of the enemy, the fact is, if you're serving as a bridge between biblical Christianity and the new spirituality that's emerging, you should be warned about.
0: So there you go. So it doesn't matter if you're orthodox. doesn't matter if you're actually teaching the truth. It doesn't matter if you're actually proclaiming the truth or correcting the errors of Rick Warren. If Ingrid Schleter determines that you are a bridger, which is not even a biblical category, if you're a bridger, then she has decided to take it upon herself to warn the church about you. That has been my problem with Ingrid and her position from the beginning of this entire controversy, that she is lumping in men who are taking a bold and courageous stand against the false doctrine, false teachings, and outrageously anti-biblical methodologies of men like Rick Warren and had the guts to do so at Saddleback Church, she then just posts a photograph, completely ignores everything he says, and determines that even though he's orthodox and hasn't said anything heterodox, that he is unwittingly lending his credibility to Rick Warren, despite the fact that all the evidence shows that he wasn't lending any credibility to Warren at all, and that that somehow means that he is to be warned against. In other words, Ingrid has come up with a brand new discernment category that doesn't exist in the Bible, the Bridger. The Bible knows nothing about accidentally lending credibility to somebody. Now, keep in mind, I go back to my point. Jesus Christ himself, you read in Luke chapter 7, ate dinner at the house of a Pharisee. Pharisees technically were heretics. They were legalistic heretics. They were false religionists. And Jesus actually ate at the home of one of them. If Ingrid's concept of bridger, you know somebody who actually teaches the truth does all the right things actually boldly speaks against all the errors out there but as seen accidentally with somebody who is a heretic or is in the same room with them or takes a you know and here's the deal there's no photographic evidence of Jesus eating at uh, the the Pharisee's house but there that's because there were no photographs back then but we do have written documentary evidence that Jesus actually ate at the home of a Pharisee if ingrid's theory regarding bridges is true and the church must be warned that's where her words let me play them again for you
1: themselves but they are allowing themselves to become a bridge a bridge between biblical christianity and the apostate false teachers within evangelicalism the wolves that are already here the ravening wolves that uh, paul warns about in acts chapter 20 and so that's why bridgers i call them bridgers because whether they know it or whether they are unwitting being used of the enemy the fact is if you're serving as a bridge between biblical christianity and the new spirituality that's emerging you should be warned about
0: so there you have it if, if you're being used as a bridge you have to be warned about so using her logic you know we've got to warn people about jesus he lent his credibility accidentally unwittingly to a, a heretic pharisee forget the fact that actually jesus told a parable that uh, you know, in you know, at the Pharisees' home that condemned his false religion. Forget that little factoid. Just keep in mind that the gospel according to Luke gives us the word picture, the word photograph that Jesus while he was actually eating dinner with somebody who was a false religionist. And for also well, keep in mind also Jesus ate with Pharisees and tax collectors. He was lending his credibility to them all over the place. And isn't it funny, it was the Pharisees who were the ones who were saying, why does Jesus eat? Why does your master eat with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes? Yeah, I appreciate Ingrid's clarification. And her clarification shows that I've understood her position all along. Her position is is that Michael Horton is a bridger. He's unwittingly lent his credibility to Rick Warren, and the only thing she provided as proof that Michael Horton fits into the category of Bridger is one single, out-of-context photograph. And from that, she has determined and taken it upon herself to warn the church about Michael Horton. Yeah, not only is that not biblical, it sounds a little bit paranoid. Folks, the church doesn't need to be warned about Michael Horton. The church needs to be told more about Michael Horton. The the church needs to listen more to Michael Horton, because Michael Horton is one of the clearest, clarion voices out there today in boldly, lucidly, biblically speaking against and critiquing the false methodologies of Rick Warren, the false doctrines of Rick Warren, and the train wreck that has happened in the evangelical church as a result of Rick Warren's ideas and methodologies being popularized in greater American evangelicalism. There is no clearer voice than Michael Horton. He's done nothing, nothing, nothing that should cast, have us cast suspicion upon him and warn the church about him nothing because when you put the photograph back in context it shows that he was a valiant proclaimer and defender of the historic biblical gospel and spoke boldly against the errors of american evangelicalism and Rick Warren's methodologies and he did it at saddleback contrary to what ingrid says bridge
1: a bridge between biblical Christianity and the apostate false teachers within evangelicalism, the wolves that are already here, the ravening wolves that uh, Paul warns about in Acts chapter 20. And so that's why bridgers, I call them bridgers, because whether they know it or whether they are unwittingly being used of the enemy, the fact is if you're serving as a bridge between biblical Christianity and the new spirituality that's emerging, you should be warned about.
0: Contrary to what she said, Michael Horton doesn't need to be warned about. Again, you need to tell more people about him. And the fact that Ingrid can't tell the difference between enemy and ally, between friend and foe, but has decided to take it upon herself to turn her allies and her friends into enemies that need to be warned about shows me that she has lost touch with what true biblical discernment is. And again, her category of Bridger. She invented that. It's not found in the Bible. And the reason it's not found in the Bible? (laughs) Plain and simple. Because the category Bridger isn't a biblical teaching. It's actually nothing more than the age-old logical fallacy known as guilt by association. And that's all Ingrid has done here. She's created an argument where she's turned the allies of the church, those who are most boldly proclaiming the truth, and cast suspicion upon them and doubt upon their ministries and cast their character into doubt, all because she's engaging in that old logical fallacy known as guilt by association. That's all it is. But I'm glad for her clarification. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, piratechristian. We will be right back. Marty Python's Flying Circus Church!
3: Welcome to Build a God! How can I help you? Hello! I received a Build a God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just... Angry, righteous, wrathful. The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes. My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm. I think... I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their God.
0: All right, we're back. Warning: It takes far more than taking a photograph with somebody to give them credibility. In other words, the category known as Bridger it isn't biblical and it doesn't exist. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Alright, moving along here. I knew I wasn't gonna to get to everything. Ah oh, man. From the Telegraph of the UK, headline reads: Pope, Jews not to blame for death of Christ. Okay, now let's before we get to the because this is kind of a hot button issue here, you gotta be careful how you how you handle this story. Let me just put it this way. If you properly understand that we are all by nature. Sinners. That means we are born dead in trespasses and sins, and each human being is bo- is conceived guilty of Adam's sin. Yeah, it's it's not a good thing. It's really bad. It's it's horribly, really bad, bad, bad. Um, that being the case, is, is when you th- correct theological understanding of who's responsible for Jesus's death on the cross, the answer to that question is I am responsible for putting Jesus on the cross me and that also means that you are you are responsible you are responsible for killing Jesus Christ now that's not that's I don't think this is where um the pope is going here um I, hopefully I think what he's trying to do is is deal with the fact that there is a there is well for, I, I, there I I don't think this is the you know the wrong way of putting it there is there is an anti-Semitism in some quarters of the world that is just really really nasty and um and one of the arguments that some of these folks use in their anti-Semitism in their hatred of Jews all in the name of Christianity of course uh even though jesus was a jew um is that uh is that the Jews were responsible for killing jesus yeah um the thing is is that i i'm it was me i i'm responsible i'm responsible for killing jesus and uh, it was you you're responsible for killing jesus it's your sin that he took upon himself on the cross and mine So, but why do we feel like this is not where he's going with this? Let me read the story here. This is by Nick Squires, who's the uh, Rome correspondent for The Telegraph in the UK. Uh, The subhead of the article reads, "...the Pope has exonerated the Jewish people for the death of Christ, insisting that they must not be collectively blamed for his death. And understood in the right sense, yeah, that's correct. The reality is is that all of humanity must instead be collectively blamed for Jesus' death." but uh, i don't know if he gets to that point um nick writes he says in a new stu- uh, in a new study that he has written of christ's life uh, jesus of nazareth benedict the uh, 16th said that those at fault were the small number of jewish priests and leaders who called for christ's crucifixion see i see that's the thing um i wouldn't have gone for the narrow thing i would have gone for the wide anyway uh, the roman catholic church but i'm not the pope <laughs> just I'm just a radio guy. Anyway, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has maintained for decades that Jews were not responsible for Christ's execution, most notably in 1965 with a document entitled Nostra uh, Tate. Uh, But Benedict's uh, book further underlines the Vatican's teaching, while some of the Gospels refer to all of the Jewish people uh calling for Christ's crucifixion it was in fact the temple aristocracy who demanded his crucifixion after his trial by Pontius Pilate the pope wrote and and he's right it's that it, that's correct but then you got that that account in Jesus where the whole crowd is yelling crucify him crucify him and then you got the apostle peter on on at Pentecost, he was he wasn't pointing at the the temple aristocracy, but he says to everybody listening to his great Pentecost sermon that they were responsible for killing Jesus, and Peter, as a Jew, wasn't talking about Jews. He was this wasn't an, uh, anyway, yeah, anti-Semitism wasn't the thing that was on his mind anyway. Um. Let's see here. While some of the Gospels refer to all of the Jewish people calling for Christ's crucifixion, it was, in fact, the temple aristocracy who demanded his crucifixion. After his trial by Pontius Pilate, the Pope wrote, In doing so, he challenged interpretations of the Bible which have been used for centuries to justify persecution of the Jews. Yeah, and I and, and see, this is where I have to agree with the Pope, is that uh, I've seen some of these anti-Semitic arguments that uh, have been lobbed by people in the name of Jesus against... Judaism and basically, it's just it's a horribly, miserably bad and terrible, ugly argument, and it's not right because, like I said, I I'm the one who's responsible. Anyway, um, the uh, the, the quote continues. Saint Matthew attributes the request for the crucifixion of Jesus to all of the people. Yes, he does, but he can't he cannot be stating a historical fact. How could the entire Jewish people? Have been present at this moment to call for the death of Jesus, Benedict wrote. And I I see that, I think that's kind of missing the force because of the tree. Um yeah, I see I don't see that the crowd at that point is representing Israel like in a in a I think that they're a representative of all of humanity at this point. But I mean, you know, but that's just kind of my my thinking on it. But that that's anyway. And I think that could be defended biblically. Anyway, uh, quote, The historical reality appears in St. John and Mark. The true accusers were those circulating in the temple at the time, uh, the priestly hierarchy. The Vatican released extracts of the book, which will be published next week, in English and six other languages. Since being elected pontiff in 2005, has it really been that long? Uh, The German-born Benedict, who was forced to serve in the Hitler Youth during the war, has had a strained relationship with Jews. In 2007, he dismissed Jewish groups by relaxing restrictions on celebrating the Old Latin Mass, also known as the Tridentine Rite, restoring to prominence a prayer for the conversion of the Jews that is recited uh, during Good Friday services of uh, Easter week. And relations deteriorated further in January 2009 when Benedict lifted an ultra-traditionalist British bishop, who caused outrage uh, by questioning the extent of the Holocaust, claiming that the Nazis killed at most 300,000 Jews. Yikes. <sighs> yeah, so, um, so, you know, this seems kind of political anyway. All right, moving along here. Um, y'all familiar with Miroslav Volf? That is probably a name that many of you have not heard uh Miroslav Volf if i am not mistaken he is a, uh, a a professor uh a theologian and professor i think he's associated with Princeton nowadays um he i think he comes out of uh, the uh, uh like yugoslavia that part of the world and um he's a Multmanian, uh theologian and uh and one of the guys who academically is um Is an influence on Tony Jones of the Emergent Church. In fact, a few years ago, the Emergent Church movement held a theological conversation uh, with Miroslav Volf. And so he's uh, got a book out called Allah, A Christian Response. And he's got a recent article published in the Christian, uh, not the Christian Post, see, there I go again, the Huffington Post entitled, Do Christians and Muslims Worship the Same God? Let me read. Miroslav Volf speaking now. Muslims and Christians can work together to depose dictators and assert the power of the people. We've seen it happen on the Tahir, Tahir Square in Cairo during the 2011 revolution in Egypt, with devout Muslims and Coptic Christians protesting side by side. But can Muslims and Christians work together to build a democratic society? In which rights of all are respected, the rights of minority Coptic Christians, no less than the rights of the majority of Muslims, you will not if Sharia law gets put in place, that was me, not him anyway um they can they can if they have a common set of fundamental values, but do they they do if they both if they both monotheists have a common God, oh good night, you know, um. <sighs> Okay, so um, let me see where he goes with his argument. <clears throat> Ever since 9-11, the most common question I am asked whether I speak about these two religions is whether or not Muslims and Christians worship the same God. The answer is no. Anyway, um, <clears throat> let me see. But Christians do vigorously in Europe, Asia, and Africa no less than in North America. Maybe that's not surprising. In the manual of the terrorists who flew the planes on a suicidal mission... To read, remember, this is a battle for the sake of God, in the name of God, and with expectations of glory in this world and rewards in the next, they killed themselves and thousands of innocent civilians. To many Christians, it seems obvious that the God who spills the blood of the innocent and rewards suicidal missions with uh, paradisical pleasures can't be the God that they worship. Right. (laughs) Correct. This is a no-brainer. But apparently that's not enough for him. The uh, the Moltmanian scholar Miroslav Volf continues. The question, however, isn't mainly about the terrorists and their god. It's about Muslims generally. It draws its energy from a deep concern to ask, do we have a common God, is is to worry, can we live together without bloodshed? That's why whether a given community worships the same God as another community has always been a crucial cultural and political question, and not just a theological one. Here are the realities that we all face. Uh, number one, Christianity and Islam are today the most numerous and fastest growing religions globally. Together, they encompass more than half of humanity. Consequence... They are both here to stay. Two, as a result of globalization, ours is an interconnected and interdependent world. Religions are intermingled within single states and across their boundaries. Consequence, Muslims and Christians will increasingly share common spaces. True. True. Since both religions are by their very nature nature socially engaged, and since their followers mostly embrace democratic ideals, they will continue to push for their vision of the good life in the public square. Consequence, tensions between Muslims and Christians are unavoidable. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Those those tensions seem to go all the way back to uh, Muhammad, Anyway, and let me, Volf continues, he says, Growing intertwined and assertive communities of Muslims and Christians will live together, but can they live in peace, building together a common future? At the height of the Iraq war in 2004, influential TV evangelist and former U.S. presidential candidate Pat Robertson said, quote, The entire world is being convulsed by a religious struggle. The fight is not about money or territory it's not about poverty versus wealth it's not about ancient customs versus modernity no the struggle is with who ball the moon god of mecca known as Allah is supreme or whether the judeo-christian god of the bible is supreme fighting words these are two supreme divine beings always mean war The fact of the matter is this. Fearful people bent on domination have created the contest for supremacy between Yahweh, uh, the God of the Bible, and Allah, the God of the Quran. The two are one God, albeit differently understood. Arab Christians have for centuries worshipped God under the name Allah— most Christians uh, through the centuries, saints and teachers of undisputed orthodoxies, orthodoxy have believed that Muslims worship the same God as they do. They did so even in times of Muslim cultural ascendancy and military conquest when they represented a grave threat to Christianity in the whole of, the, of Europe. After the fall of Constantinople, the city named after the first Christian emperor and a seat of Christendom for more than a, a thousand years, Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa, a towering intellect and an experienced church diplomat un- affirmed unambiguously that Muslims and Christians worship the same God, albeit partly differently understood. Oh, man. <sighs> what to do with this? Um, yeah, here's the issue. Okay. I don't care what Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa said. If Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa, who was a towering intellect and an an experienced church diplomat, claimed in 1453 that Islam and Christianity worshiped the same God, Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa was wrong. Wrong. And so is Miroslav Wolf. I don't see any um, in this article, you know what's missing? A comparison of the God who was revealed in the Quran versus the God who was, reve- who was revealed in the Bible. And see, here's the deal. Being a Moltmannian, he's a Hegelian. And uh, being a Hegelian, that means he's he doesn't um, believe in the logical law of non-contradiction. And you're sitting there going, "What are you talking about, Chris?" And yeah, well, see, he, this is called deductive logic. Okay, so you, this you got to do these things some, from time to time, but here's how it works, okay? You take something that you know about somebody. For instance, Miroslav Wolf. He is a student of Jürgen Moltmann. Jürgen Moltmann Is a a basically has made it very clear that any of the doctoral students that that study under him, he would not allow them to get their doctorate if they weren't a Hegelian at the end of the process. Okay, he is a Tubingen school, uh, Hegelian uh, liberal. That's probably the best way to put it. Okay, so that being the case. Uh, Miroslav Wolf, who is a Multmanian, is a Hegelian. Now you're going, what are you talking about? Okay, so a Hegelian, they don't believe in the logical law of non-contradiction. They, you know, you're going, they don't. Well, they 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 live it out in in normal life. For instance, like if Miroslav Wolf were crossing the street, he actually still looks both ways because he knows that the logical law of non-contradiction exists. You know, in the material world, in such a way that. When he's crossing the uh, when he's crossing the street, if he's in the crosswalk at the same time that a bus is, that he's not going to win that encounter. And so, in the real world, you know he still expects the bank to operate off the logical law of non-contradiction because he wants his balance in his bank account to be a particular way. He looks both ways when he crosses the street, but. Regarding um spiritual things and things of the intellect or whatever, the Hegelian dialectic basically uh, teaches there is no such thing as uh, as as exclusive truth. you know truth kind of changes truth exists in synthesis, and so what happens is is that in any given point in history, you have basically these competing uh, uh, c- competing ideas. You've got thesis and antithesis warring against each other, and then there's an evolutionary jump where the thesis and antithesis synthesize into a new thesis, and then a new antithesis comes along. And, and so um, that being the case, um, that makes it possible for Hegelians to not believe in the logical law of non-contradiction. And so he wouldn't approach this uh, problem from the the idea that, hey, look, okay, if we open up the God, if we open up the Bible and we look at the God who's revealed there, the 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 Holy Trinity, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be able, you know, based on what God has revealed about Himself there, we would then look to the Quran where it, it says that that that, there, that God is not a Trinity, that that specifically makes claims about God, that God is very monistically monotheistically, you know, one one, that there is no Father, there is no Son, there is no Holy Spirit, there is just a law. You say, well, that, okay, well, those are two mutually exclusive claims. Either God is the Holy Trinity or he's the God revealed in the Quran. They can't both be the same. The Hegelian scholar would go, no, 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 no. We don't have to do that. And so as a result of it, now we've got Jurgen, uh, a Jurgen Moltmann student, um, Miroslav Volf, who was one of the teachers of uh, Tony Jones, basically claiming that Allah and Yahweh are the same God, albeit differently expressed, you know, and, and whatever. No, they're not. They're not the same God. The logical law of non-contradiction makes it perfectly clear. It's either Allah or it's Yahweh or none of them, Period. But all, Yahweh is not a law, and to say that He is is just blasphemy—absolute blasphemy. And uh, I don't—and and quoting Nicholas of Cusa, don't do nothing. Sorry, um, Nicholas of Cusa is to be judged by the clear teachings of the Word of God. And uh, yeah, no, no. So anybody who would tell you that the, the Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Um, they're either confused or deceived, both or deceiving. It's when you know one of those things. But yeah, no. Um, Allah and Yahweh are not the same God, and I don't care if it's Miroslav Wolf saying it. I don't say. I don't care if it's Nicholas of Kusa. I don't even care if it's. Uh, Matt Harrison of the LCMS, if he were to say something like that, he would be flat-out wrong, and I would know with certainty that he's wrong because the God that's revealed in the Scriptures it says things about himself that the God that reveals himself in the Quran says aren't true. So they're not the same deity. They seem to be at war with each other. So um, what's the solution? Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, to your Muslim neighbors because they need to repent of their false religion and idolatry and be saved through the one name under heaven, which is given by which men must be saved. And that's Jesus Christ. <sighs> yeah. The one true God in human flesh. All right. We're up on our second break. When we come back, it's going to be sermon review time. What we're going to be doing is uh, part four of our, uh, you know, kind of wrapping this, we're wrapping up the whole hell thing. Um, Man, it's kind of sad that uh, poor Ron Bell wasn't able to make it to the party. But, yeah, we've got this thing pretty much buttoned down. This is the last of the four lectures. There's not pretty much nothing else to say after this. Uh, but if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
3: No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is
2: the air I breathe. I've had enough!
0: Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low Prices. Visit Pirate Christian Radio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's Pirate Christian com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. We're going to be listening to part four of uh, Ted Donnelly's uh, lectures on the Doctrine of Hell. Apparently, uh, Rob Bell didn't get to show up to participate in the conversation. Now, this is an interesting sermon, but uh, I'll explain here in a second. Hold on. Let's uh, cue up the sermon review music. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is a lecture, the final lecture in the Hell series by Pastor Ted Donnelly. Now, I know I'm playing the ukulele music here, and this actually is a good sermon, but I'm going to use this not so much to focus in on hell, but to focus a little bit, you know, start to focus away from hell per se to focus point out one of the major differences between Lutheran and Reformed preaching regarding sanctification. Because this sermon, although it's talking about the doctrine of hell, you're going to hear hell. This one, I think, demonstrates one of the fundamental differences between how Lutherans look at sanctification as opposed to how the Reformed look at sanctification. That being said, keep in mind it is a sermon on hell, but this one's just so fascinating to me on a a secondary level that I had to bring the secondary level up to the front let me uh let me kill the music so without any further ado here is ted donnelly uh the last sermon that he last lecture that he gives on the doctrine of hell talking about how the how should the doctrine of hell practically apply to christians yet yeah, and uh I'll, I'll be pausing along the way because there's certain things that he says that i wouldn't say it that way uh, specifically because i have a different view of sanctification than he does So uh, uh, you'll see what happens as we go. But here's uh, Ted Donnelly. Here we go.
2: Thank you all very much for inviting me to speak at this conference. Thank you for your warmth and friendship and great kindness to my wife and myself. Thank you for the challenge of the teaching, which I have been privileged to sit under. Pastors don't often... Have that joy and for the challenge of fellowship with many of you. We have seen much of Christ in you and have learned many lessons. Thank you for the privilege of being here. May God bless you all in your churches and in your individual and family lives. The fourth question and the last question that we want to consider this evening as we think together of the biblical doctrine of hell is a very practical one. What effect should the reality of hell have on us? What effect should the reality of hell have on us? So this is the, this is the practical
0: application part of the sermon lecture series. We'll pay close attention.
2: The main effect is a very obvious one on which we spent a great deal of time yesterday evening. Its main thrust is obviously to the unconverted, to those who are still without Christ and without hope. Perhaps still some here. And if you are not a Christian now, if you have not been born again by God's Spirit, I appeal to you again. Think Remember what you heard yesterday evening. Don't let it drop out of your mind. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he could look into the future and see the wretchedness which faced them. If you are not a Christian, we weep for you. We are sorry for you, desperately sorry. You have two alternatives. You may by faith enter the family of God and heaven forever. Or you may go forever to the lake of fire. I appeal to you again. Why will you die? God himself invites you. You have another opportunity. God has been very good to you. You resisted him yesterday. You've been resisting him since. But he is merciful.
0: And he is patient. Okay, now, got to pause here. Right off the bat, you know, going into the application part of the lecture, I would emphasize the gospel far more at this point than the law, because or hell. Because hell has to do with punishment, and it has to do with the law. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ Yeah, he's pretty much done, well, what he's done is absolutely scare us all silly about uh, hell, and he'd handled it correctly and soberly, and the frightening uh, details of it were not done in such a way for Hollywood kind of stuff. I think he actually gave a fair representation of what hell's all about, and the law's done its work now. Uh, Yeah. We need the gospel big time at this point. We, oh man, and not just in passing. We need it really placarded at this point. That on the cross Christ actually suffered all of our, sucked up the wrath of God. It was upon Him. So that will and how that is for us and and placard the good news of the forgiveness of all of our sins won by Christ. So at this point, if it sounds like I'm being somewhat critical, yeah, I am, because I think we've got to be careful here, and that is, is that, remember, the purpose of the law is to drive us to our knees, but it's the gospel that God uses to grant us repentance and faith. It's through the gospel that men are saved, not the law, the gospel.
2: So we've got to be careful, but let's continue. Don't abuse his mercy. Don't try his patience. Please, call on Christ to save you. Ask him to give you the new heart, the new ability to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, to grant to you repentance and faith. Call on him, receive him, rest upon him for salvation, and he will save you. That is the great overwhelming effect which the reality of hell should have to those who who are destined to go there. May you repent and believe in Christ. But I want to spend the bulk of our time this evening applying this doctrine to believers. But it's not just for the unconverted. James tells us that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And that applies to all of us. In the doctrine of hell we have heard God speaking to us, not man. Who can hear the voice of God and remain unchanged? Surely it would be a tragic thing if we sat together for four evenings and thought about this awesome and fearful doctrine, and went away the same people as we were when we came. If it left no mark on us, if we were unchanged by it, my dear friends, surely we should ask the Holy Spirit to so impress hell upon our redeemed consciousness that from now on we will be different people. I said at the beginning that I commenced the study of this doctrine some months ago with a degree of reluctance and hesitation. But I want to say now that that feeling rapidly changed to one of thankfulness and privilege. And long before I had finished my preparation, I was glad that I had been asked to study this doctrine. And I hope and pray that it has made an effect on me and changed me as a person. So I want to bring before you this evening six things which the doctrine of hell should produce in us. There are many more, but we concentrate on these. What effect...
0: Okay, now stop. Okay. Listen carefully, and don't misunderstand him here. Six things that the doctrine of hell should impress upon us. When you hear those words, it's not hell, it's the biblical teaching about hell. So what the Bible reveals. So when you hear somebody say something like, today we're going to learn the doctrine of hell, or we're going to learn about the doctrine of the Trinity— that's shorthand and it's not it's not that the doctrine is the thing we're studying. We're studying what God's teaching, what God's word has revealed on this. You you got to keep that key in your mind so that you don't misunderstand what he's doing here, okay? He's referring to what the scriptures reveal, what God has revealed in his word regarding this specific teaching. So that, you know, so that you don't think that hell is the thing that's producing these things in you. It's, what, it's the word of God that's producing these things in you. Yeah, just important to note that.
2: Should the reality of hell have on us? In the first place, it should produce in us a daily commitment to putting sin to death. A daily commitment to putting sin to death. That was one of the lessons which our Lord himself drew from the doctrine of hell. In Matthew chapter 5 verses 29 and 30, he says to his disciples, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. There's the doctrine of hell. And Christ is using it. He's adducing the doctrine of hell. He's bringing it to bear on the consciences of his disciples. And he says the only alternative for you to going to hell is to deal radically with with your personal sin, to amputate, to pluck out, to cut out, to cast away. If you do not do that, you will go to hell. If you don't deal with your sin, you will go to hell.
0: Now stop. In case you're thinking, boy, that sounds a lot like salvation by works, give him a moment, he'll clarify.
2: If you don't pluck out your eye or cut off your hand, you will go to hell. Now, we may say, that's a strange thing for Christ to say. Is it not true that we are saved through faith in Christ? Is that not all that was required? Was the dying thief able to pluck out his right eye and and cut off his right hand? Did Jesus not say to him, Today you will be with me in paradise? Do we not believe that the acting of repentance and faith so unites us to Christ as to render us safe for time and for eternity? Do we not believe that we're kept to glory by the power of God and not one of his people will be lost or can be lost? Is the gospel not exceedingly simple? If you're unconverted, believe. If you're converted, you're safe. Where does amputation come in? Where does hell come in as a possibility? But to think in this way is to misunderstand salvation, as many do. People think, you see, of salvation as one self-enclosed, instantaneous transaction that is over and done with, full stop, end of story. And once you have carried through that transaction, you have a legal right to heaven. It's like purchasing a house. If you had enough money to put down the whole purchase price, that house would be yours forever. You could never lose it. You would have nothing more to do, nothing more to worry about. But that's a misunderstanding. Believing in Christ is the beginning of a new relationship. It is not a self-enclosed little capsule in our past history.
0: Okay, now this is where I would start to make a big distinction between the Lutheran view of sanctification versus the Reformed view. Did you hear what he said? Now, this is a Presbyterian minister. This guy is a a Calvinist, you know, through and through, I mean, all, all the way through the Jonathan Edwards quotes, you could tell that, that he truly is, is really swimming in, uh, in uh, Reformed theology. And this is where I would make the difference. It's that it's not that we're in a new relationship that we're responsible for, that it's this, that as Christians we are a new creation in Christ— And now that we are a new creation in Christ, the thing that that new creation does, that new man gets to work and does, and does the thing of putting to death our sinful nature. But you don't put your, you do not, do not, do not, do not uh, rest your assurance of salvation based upon your mortification of the flesh. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a, in a situation down the road where you're going, I just don't know if I'm mortifying my flesh enough. I don't know if I'm really truly doing, if, if I'm really even saved, because the one thing I can tell you, the longer you live the Christian life, you know, and the more you realize what God's Word demands of you, what His law actually is, is pushing for in your life, and you realize how far afoul you, you really run afoul of that, the less sanctified you feel as you get uh, get closer along so your assurance needs to actually be somewhere outside of yourself something that you can cling on to and you don't want to rest your assurance based upon your sanctification yeah that's not uh, you know or or even how well you're doing in the, your mortification does mortification point to the fact that you are saved? Yes, it is one of the fruits of it, but it's not the thing you rest your assurance on. And so, this is where I would begin to make a distinction and basically say this is a fascinating sermon because it's interesting listening to the reformed view, but the, there's some reasons why I don't think that that's actually the most correct view. But let me <clears throat> let me let me quote the apostle Paul. Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So as Christians, we are a new creation. And notice that Paul takes us back to our baptisms. In our baptisms, we are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. Colossians says our hearts are circumcised by Christ. You can look at uh, Paul and Peter. Their sins are washed away. And Paul asks the questions, should we sin that grace may increase? May it never be. So um yeah in 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 this part of the lecture I think this represents kind of a more reformed way of looking at sanctification rather than the Lutheran way and I and I'm I'm convinced having lived long enough that, that I I just don't think this is the best of arguments but it's a fascinating lecture so let's continue and see where he goes with this
2: which we took away in the deposit box of our memory, but has no further effect on us. Exactly as we heard in the morning sessions, the same grace which saves is the same grace which sanctifies. It is a relationship which is daily,
0: which is continue- right, 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 right? The same grace that saves is the same grace that sanctifies. Yes, yes, yes. It's the gospel. It's the, it's yeah. Uh, right.
2: Continuing, which is identical with the original. I believe in Christ today, as I believed on Him the day I was saved. I recognize my helplessness and my sinfulness. I turn from it. I cast myself. Upon him for mercy, I believe that he can and does save me. We are believers. People who believe every day on and on and on.
0: And this is where I would say a more sacramental view is we as Paul says, we are baptized believers that's important stuff, get, then, because that, that points outside of us, and, it, and that's so imperative in those times of struggle where you feel like, yeah, I don't know if I really am saved. Look at how miserable I am at the sanctification thing. That's when I come back to what Paul says. We're baptized believers.
2: That's the great difference between true faith and false faith. It may well be that at this conference God has been dealing with some of you regarding your salvation. Perhaps you came here unconverted, and at some of the meetings God has spoken to you, God has drawn near to you, and you have been moved and you have been convicted. Perhaps it is the case that some of you have confessed your sins to Christ and turned from your sins, and called on Christ to save you. We hear that that may be the case with some here. What wonderful news! How delighted we are, how thrilled we are to hear that you have done that. We praise God for that transaction. And if it's true faith, that means that you have everlasting life, you will never be condemned. You will never go to hell. But perhaps if that is the case with you, you've already wondered to yourself, is it true faith? Uh,
0: This is a good question. And this is where we've got to point to something a little bit more anchored than... uh, the up-and-down, imperfect sanctification in my life.
2: Is it true faith? Perhaps I was just emotional last night. It was a terrible subject. Perhaps I was just carried away. Is it true faith, or is it false faith? There's a very easy way to tell. Start putting sin to death young
0: person I don't think it's that easy but here's the deal you true Christians those who have been granted repentance and the forgiveness of sins those who trust in Christ for their salvation they can't help but do good works cuz that's what the new man does so um and you know here it come, yeah yes we are to mortify the flesh we are absolutely to put the deeds of darkness to death and to to lay aside those things that hinder us from running the the race and and um but i get a little queasy when you start making it sound like well this is how, the the sign that i'm a christian I would point to something far more sacramental. Come back to your baptism. Go to the Lord's Supper and receive the bread and the wine and the, and the body and blood of Christ and have it, the, the, the pastor say, this is the body of Christ broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins because your Christian sanctification is going to be miserably inconsistent and incomplete uh, from now until the day you die. So it's not, I, I, this is not where I look to for my assurance, but let's listen to this, because, again, this is kind of the Reformed way of looking at it, and I just have to chime in because the, I, get, I get nervous with this stuff.
2: If God has been dealing with you, if you professed faith, and you're wondering to yourself, I trust it's true, I hope it's true, is it true? I don't want it to be false. Well, let me tell you what you must do now, this evening— is set yourself to a lifetime of killing sin and a lifetime of obedience. Make the determination in your own heart and soul, from now on, I will turn away from sin. I will fight it. I will wrestle against temptation. I will read my Bible. I will seek God in prayer. I will come to the means of grace. I will listen to the preaching of the word. I will take counsel. I will tell my friends that from now on I'm a Christian. I will make a determined, permanent commitment and ask God to help me and enable me to have done with sin. That's what you must do. And as by God's grace you do that from day to day. As you persevere in that, putting sin to death, then the assurance will grow in your heart that that night, indeed, Christ did save
0: me. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, this is where I get nervous. I don't look to my sanctification and progress in it for my assurance. It's, I just think that's a slippery, slippery slope. I think that's a foundation of sand and a formula that could create despair. You need something far more anchored. We can truly know and it, it's not, it can't be based upon what me or I'm in trouble. I'm the problem still because I'm not sanctified uh, perfectly at this point.
2: But let's listen. That was real, that it was permanent, and your parents and your friends and your pastors will see the change in you. And they will say, yes, praise God, our work was done. We saw one of the men this afternoon, perhaps, some of you did, showing us how to climb a tree. I'm sure all the pastors were noting down many sermon illustrations. (laughs) Did you see the knotty tide? It would move up, but it wouldn't move down. You could push it up with two fingers. You couldn't pull it down with all your strength. That's what you must do in your consciousness. Only upwards, only upwards. I don't want to fall, I don't want to go down, I only want to go up. That's what the doctrine of hell should, should say to us. Perseverance of the saints means perseverance in repenting and believing. That's what it means, it means that we repent every day and we believe every day. And the special mark of the disciple is that the disciple of Christ deals with sin. In Romans 8.13, Paul says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Young people, if God has been dealing with you, we are thrilled. Give yourself now, as you sit here, make that resolve. God helping me, I will put to death the deeds of the body, that I may see the change, that others may see the change, that Jesus may be glorified in me, that it may be plain that I am a true disciple. Our Lord is telling each one of us that we are never to treat hell as irrelevant for us. No matter how long you've been a Christian, the evidence that you're not going to hell is the way in which you deal with personal sin. John Owen says, make putting sin to death your daily work. Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. You've heard this phrase many times, I'm sure. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you.
0: Pretty good words there, yeah. Amen to that.
2: The mark of a disciple is that they're killing sin. And when each one of us is tempted, when sin seems attractive to us, and we're reluctant to pay the price and to meet the cost, say to yourself, if I commit this sin, I am telling God that I want to go to hell. That's what Matthew 5 is saying. That's what those verses are saying. In the committing of this sin, I'm saying, I choose hell. I want hell. How many times will a true believer say that to God? Friends, say that to yourself when temptation comes. Do I want hell? Do I choose hell? Is that what I'm saying? And if that doesn't stop you from sinning, then you are in a dangerous position. The first effect of the, the doctrine of hell is to lead us to a daily commitment to putting sin to death. Secondly, the doctrine of hell should produce in us unbroken contentment in all life's circumstances. Unbroken contentment in all life's circumstances. Paul, while lying in prison, could say in Philippians 4.1, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. He had to learn it. It was a very difficult lesson for the apostle. And it obviously took him time to learn it. But he did learn it. And he could say without affectation or pride, I have learned to be content. I can be poor or rich, I can be full or empty, I can be honored or abased. I have learned to be content. Can you say that? Can you say, I have learned to be content? One of the Puritans, Jeremiah Burroughs, wrote a book about Christian contentment. He gave it an interesting title, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in that title he's telling us that it's not often seen. That it's something very rare and precious and special. And in that book Burroughs says, To be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory and excellence of a Christian. It is a great mark of grace to have learned to be content." And there are times when it's easy to be content, and there are times when it's difficult, when life is hard, when we're disappointed in ourselves, in others, when we meet what the Puritans called God's frowning providences. It's hard to be content. And it's made harder by the fact that we're living in a world whose commerce is fueled by creating artificial discontent. The whole world of advertising is designed to make us discontented. If we weren't discontented, the economy of the Western world would grind to a halt. We're described by our government as consumers. That's a very elevated phrase, isn't it? I think of pigs at a trough. They're consumers. That's how we're seen. That's exactly how we're seen. You cannot turn on your television without seeing advertisements designed by experts with this one purpose to make you discontented with your house, with your car, with whatever it is. And that affects us. It helps to make us discontented. And the devil likes to make us discontented. We heard how rationally Adam and Eve were discontented. In the Garden of Eden, perfection is everything they could possibly need or want, but what happened? They were discontented. So it is a a thing that we need to learn. Discontent is a sin. It angers God. It robs us of happiness. It's a very poor witness to others to see discontented, complaining, murmuring, grumbling Christians. It was a great characteristic of Israel after the Exodus. We don't like this manna. We wish we were back in Egypt. Why did you bring us out into this wilderness? God says, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who murmur against me? Now, there are many things which should make us contented. God's sovereignty should make us contented. He orders all things in his wisdom and mercy for our good. That should make us contented. God's blessings should make us contented. God's promises for this life and the future life should make us contented. But we should also be contented, quite simply, because we're not going to hell. John Wesley wrote once in his diary, at about eleven this morning, it came into my mind that this was the very day in which, forty years ago, I was taken out of the flames. I gave way to the voice of praise and thanksgiving and fell down in great rejoicing before the Lord. The remembrance of his deliverance from hell made him happy. And when we're tempted to feel sorry for ourselves, one of the best cures is to look at someone else who's worse off during times when I have periods of minor ill health, and I'm feeling a bit sorry for myself, a bit down in the mouth. I just need to look down from my pulpit on the Lord's Day and see a gracious Christian lady in a wheelchair with a crippling and incurable disease. And all my self-pity vanishes. What are you complaining about? Look what she has to bear. My friend, we're living in a world surrounded by multitudes who are going to hell. They're infinitely, eternally worse off, and yet we complain. We complain. One of the Puritan pastors used to just look mildly at a complaining member of his congregation and say, "Friend, not in hell, I'm complaining. Not in hell, I'm complaining." What have we to complain of it? We have been saved from everlasting torment. The next time you think that life is treating you hardly, the next time you think that life is unfair, that God has, has could have done more for you, look into the pit of hell and say to yourself, I was going there, but now I'm not. I'm going to heaven. God has saved me.
0: Amen. <laughs> oh, oh, wow.
2: What have I to complain about? What are all the miseries and disappointments and sorrows of this life? What if I were to be treated to endless pain from nigh to the day I die? It would be nothing, nothing compared to what I deserve, to what I was destined for, to what God has saved me from. The psalmist says, I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of the pit. The doctrine of hell should make believers supremely contented and happy, grateful and thankful to God in every circumstance Thirdly, it should produce in us a pervasive seriousness in our thinking and behavior. A pervasive seriousness in our thinking and behavior. It seems to be that one of the great fears of many modern evangelicals is the fear of being thought gloomy. We are told that an essential part of our witness is that Christianity is great fun. And you see in some churches a frantic, forced joviality which seems to be part of the witness. In in many evangelical churches, the elders of Mavum, who have introduced these meetings, would be seen as pathetic, inadequate failures. No jokes, no warm-up lines, no laughs. These poor men just come over here and say, "Let us worship God and lead in prayer and announce the opening prayers." Where is their grasp of human psychology? that we're going to have a real fun time this evening. Many Christian testimonies are nothing but happiness and success and blessing and how uninterruptedly wonderful the Christian life has been with nothing else. You go to some churches and you think that the, the people who greet you at the door have something wrong with their jaws. They greet you like this. As if they just got their teeth we Or practicing ventriloquism. Wonderful to see you. You say, what? what is wrong with you? Why are you grinning like that? What do you think of people who go about grinning all the time? But that's part of, you see, of the Christian witness. And yet we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was a man of sorrows. He wasn't a bundle of laughs. He said, Happy are the people who mourn. Happy are the people who mourn. How can we explain that? Well, there are many reasons, but one of the greatest of them is the doctrine of hell. How can we be people who go through life giggling and tittering and laughing when we are surrounded by millions who are going to damnation? If a plague was raging in a city, and there were dead bodies lying everywhere, and there were a group of people tee-heeing and giggling their way along because they had a cure. What would you think of those people? The psalmist says, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Now, that does not mean that as believers we are to be gloomy or morbid. We have a joy unspeakable and full of glory. We rejoice evermore. And if I can go back on what I said, haven't we had fun here this week? Haven't we laughed together in our fellowship around the meal table? Haven't we had a tremendous enjoyable time? Haven't we gone to the swimming pool and seen the children screaming with delight and leaping in and having the best time? Haven't we experienced a great deal of natural, healthy laughter and fun? I don't see you as a very gloomy, depressed, morbid people. But there is a difference between happiness and frivolity, between joy and shallowness. And the awareness of hell should produce in us an underlying seriousness, a gravity, a realism among the lost and dying. I suppose I have a strongly developed sense of humour. I do tend to see the funny side of life. And funniest of all are human beings. And the funniest human being that I know is speaking to you now. And I do use humor when I'm preaching. I think it can be appropriate. I think it can be blessed by God. But the difference between humor and clownishness is that you know when it is totally, totally inappropriate and out of place. And when it is utterly banished, as it is for much of the time, in the declaration of the word of God, it has to be very restrained. We haven't had many laughs this week. What sort of a buffoon would you have thought I was if I'd tried to introduce humour in addresses on hell? What an obnoxious thing. And yet, friends, it's done. It's done. It's done by surprising people. I saw a video recently of a Reformed conference. Three or four very eminent men were the speakers. One of them was asked if all the people who went to his church were converted. And he said, well, there are some of my church members, and I certainly wouldn't like to be handcuffed to them when they die. And the whole audience burst into laughter. Do you, do you find that funny? Is there something defective in my sense of humor that I didn't find it funny? Do you think the pastors here say that to each other? Oh, there's some members of my congregation. I wouldn't like to be handcuffed to them. when they... Do you think their parents are saying that about their children? You see, it's, it's, it's completely and utterly out of place. We are to be a serious people. One of our reformed Presbyterian ministers, a very famous minister, J.P. Struthers in Scotland at the end of the last century, was one evening walking along the streets of Greenock, the town in which he lived and preached. And he saw in the distance a drunk man. He was staggering and mouthing and singing and making a fool of himself. And he was surrounded by a laughing group of citizens, several of whom were members of Mr. Struthers' church. Struthers walked into the middle of the circle and he just looked at the people and he said for many walk of whom I have told you often and tell you again weeping weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. What are you laughing at? What's funny about it? And the crowd melted and went away. Now people may think we are morbid People may think we're gloomy. People may think our meetings are stodgy and dull. Don't have the glamour and the glitter and the sparkle of the polished ecclesiastical comedians. But I tell you one thing. When people are in trouble, they'll not turn to the clowns. When people are at a real crisis in their life, they'll not want somebody to tell them little stories and make them laugh. And you'll find. That if there is a seriousness, a dignity, a gravity about you, that people will be drawn to you. People will feel here is someone in touch with life. And in the long run, your impact will be far, far greater. The book of Ecclesiastes says it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Let us be sober, let us be serious, let us be thoughtful as we live in a world where multitudes of our fellow men are perishing. Fourthly, this doctrine of hell should produce in us a deeper appreciation of the love and merits of the Lord Jesus Christ a deeper appreciation of the love and merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says that though we have not seen him, we love him. That's true. And we long to love him more, don't we? How can we love him more? How can we love him more? He himself stated a principle in the Gospels when he said, to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And the corollary would be, to whom much is forgiven, the same loveth much. How much have we, we been forgiven? How much have we been spared? What did it cost him to save you? We know that he came to earth for us, that he lived as a man. That he suffered and died, that's wonderful. It's beyond comparison. But one writer says, until we stare hell in the face, we take Christ's love for granted. Until we stare hell in the face. It's already been alluded to in prayer this evening. Yesterday, we tried feebly to imagine...
0: Okay, I want to pause. He's absolutely right. This is a fantastic use of hell to help us understand the depth and the magnitude of the love of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Spot on.
2: What hell must be like, and it was truly appalling. And we remind ourselves now that our Lord Jesus does not need to imagine it, for he has experienced he has experienced he has experienced separation from god he has experienced god's angry presence he has experienced agonizing pain he has drunk the cup of god's wrath to the very dregs the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all it pleased the lord To bruise him. He did not spare his own son. He visited on him all the fury of his holy wrath for sin. Damnation. And he took it. He took it for you. He took your damnation. He suffered your hell. He took it in his own person. Should we not love him? Lord Jesus, you were condemned for me. You suffered what I suffered. You paid in my place. You took all that horror upon yourself because you loved me. And more than that, hell gives us a new insight into the merit of Christ's death into its worth, the value of the atonement. We saw something last night of how terrible the punishment is for each and every sinner, and yet it is just, it is deserved, it is measured. And we saw that eternity itself in hell will not satisfy God's anger, and that you have suffered for millions of years. You will not have satisfied his anger. But the Lord Jesus Christ, somehow, by his death, made full atonement for all the sins
1: of all his
2: people. The precious blood of Christ. How can we begin to understand that? How infinitely worthy such a death may be that one death at one moment in history was sufficient to pay for all the sins and all the damnation of all God's elect, so that he could cry, It is finished.
0: <coughs> Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I just had to put that in there, you know, because this guy's reformed. I'm, yeah.
2: How much is the death of Christ worth? We cannot begin even to describe it or think of it. What a mystery it is. How great a being He must be. How precious in His Father's eyes. How infinitely worthy that His blood can cleanse us from all sin. That His death can pay that awful, awful, unimaginable price. That Calvary makes up for all eternity in damnation. That God can say, I am satisfied. Well, might Paul say, God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the preciousness of his death, the depths of his love, the love that suffered for our sin, the death that made atonement. Hell brings us to Christ. Hell brings us to our knees. Hell fills us with love. Hell moves us to wonder. Hell brings glory to the Savior. Hell transforms us and inspires us with a new adoration for him who loved us and gave himself for us. The love which went to hell for us the love which emptied hell and drained hell and destroyed hell and cancelled hell for us. That's what he's worth. That's who he is. That's why, young people, when you believe in Jesus, you have linked yourself to a being of unimaginable power and grace and might and glory that this cosmos cannot comprehend or imagine. It isn't a small thing to believe in Jesus. It isn't a trivial thing for the Lord Jesus Christ to say, Come unto me. He's not a small person. He's not a limited being. He's a being of such glory and majesty and power and worth and kindness and grace. He calls you to himself. To be your friend and your Savior and your Lord. So loving, so powerful, so worthy. Christ saves from hell by experiencing the pains of hell. If we don't go away loving our Savior more, and esteeming his death more highly, then we've studied this topic in vain. Fifthly, the doctrine of hell should produce in us a renewed zeal for biblical evangelism. A renewed zeal for biblical evangelism, and perhaps
0: this is the. This is absolutely spot on. Don't miss what he's saying here. This is. Yes, 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 yes.
2: Most obvious effect. I'm quite sure you've all thought of it already. And wondered when is he going to come around to it. Even a moment's thought would lead us to that conclusion. We must do something. If people around us are going to hell, and hell is a terrible place, we must do something. So many are lost. We have the only gospel. We have been lost ourselves. We have freedom for now, in your country and mine, to proclaim it. Freedom may last. We don't know. We are God's means for the salvation of the elect. Our responsibility is immense and inescapable, and we are thankful for all the evangelism that is taking place in the Church throughout the world, countless efforts being made all over the globe to bring men and women and boys and girls to Christ. Yet. As I look at my own heart and life, perhaps you feel the same way. I have to acknowledge that I am not nearly, not nearly as zealous for evangelism as I should be. But I am greatly to fault and seriously to blame. R.L. Dabney, in his systematic theology, is writing about the heresy of universalism, the belief that all will be saved. And Dabney says the chief practical argument in favour of universalism is the sinful callousness of Christians towards this tremendous destiny of their fellow-creatures. Can we, he says, contemplate the exposure of our friends, neighbours and children to a fate so terrible, and feel so little, and make efforts so few and weak? For their deliverance. How can our unbelieving friends be made to credit the sincerity of our convictions? Here, he says, is the best argument of Satan for their skepticism. In other words, they don't mean it. They don't really believe it. If they believed that we were going to hell, they would do something about it.
0: Now, funny enough, when I debated Doug Paget on the doctrine of hell, He made an argument very similar to this one.
2: Dabney says the best refutation of this heresy is the exhibition by God's people of a holy, tender, humble, yet burning zeal to pluck men as brands from the burning. And here it is possible, I think it's more than possible, I think it's probable, That we who are reformed Christians, who love the doctrines of grace, may be particularly at fault. And I would suggest to you that as in so many other areas, our strength may also be our weakness. We love the word of God. We love the doctrines of the word. We love exploring this precious book. We feel that here is a treasury that we have only begun to examine, that we are only at the edges of the word of God. And it is a sheer delight to us, individually and corporately, to explore together the mighty revelation of God's wisdom and power. And we feel that eternity itself, we know that eternity itself, will be too short. In October, if I live, I'll have been a pastor for 29 years. I feel I'm just a beginner, a mere beginner at studying the Bible. That I'm still at the very fringes of it. And we have this passionate, God-implanted longing for more and more of the Scriptures. But friends, the danger. That we become so absorbed in that, so lost in that, so devoted to developing our theology and and constructing our churches along biblical lines, that we forget the dying, ruined masses round about our doors. And our strength, and it is a strength, it is a strength, our strength becomes our weakness. And we can learn, as we've heard, from other Christians. One of the things that I have been most challenged by in many, many thoroughly Arminian Christians and churches is their overwhelming zeal, their passion for the lost, their enthusiasm for evangelism, and the prayer of the salvation of many. And I have to tell you, in my own country in At least, God blesses that. And God brings many, many people to faith through Christians whose theology is defective, whose evangelism is distorted, and whose methodology is poor. And I'm defending none of those things. I'm commending them for what is commendable. And their zeal is commendable. And their passion is commendable. And it is a rebuke to us, and a challenge to us, and we should learn from it. And if we were true to our own tradition, we would be learning from it. Read of Spurgeon. We all know of his evangelistic zeal. We all know of his mighty gospel preaching. But do we also know that on a Sabbath evening, his people were scattered out across London, holding meetings, missions, Sabbath schools for children, Meetings for drunks and women of the streets, spreading out throughout the week, going out in evangelism, bringing people to hear their pastor preach. A great exploding active commitment. Where is our zeal? How often have we criticized those who do it imperfectly? it. Poor methodology. Wrong statements. Perhaps the voice of God should come why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? You who have not spoken to another human being about faith in Christ for the last month, for the last six months and you criticize this brother, this sister because they do imperfectly what you are not doing at all. Surely this doctrine should motivate us. Surely tonight we need to repent. I do. We need to gaze into hell until we feel the pain of those who are on their way to damnation. The story is told of Francis Schaeffer. And one night in the chalet at La Brie, there were a lot of keen young intellectual disciples sitting at the great man's feet and listening to his profound philosophical thoughts on many matters. And they were profound. And eventually one young man said, Dr. Schaeffer, what about those who have never heard the gospel? And waited for the brilliant answer. And Schaeffer bowed his head, and he wept. That's all. There was the heart of the man. You boys and girls have been hearing about Hudson Taylor, haven't you? One time Hudson Taylor came home from China and he was very concerned that the people in England didn't care about people who didn't know Jesus. And he told the people about a time in China when a man fell into a river. And he was in the river drowning. And the Chinese people there just stood and looked at him. And not one single person Jumped into the river to help him, and the man drowned. And the audience were gasping in horror at such hard heartedness. Hudson Taylor said, "Men and women, there are millions lost. What are you doing to rescue them, my friend? Is there someone to whom you should speak when you go home? A neighbour, a colleague, a workmate?" A member of your family? Is there someone for whom you should daily pray? I sometimes think, with a degree of shame, of the innocent simplicity I had as a young Christian. When I was on fire for the salvation of my friends, the key part of my devotions every day was to pray for an opportunity to speak to them. Oh, I'm much wiser now. I have much greater concerns in my mind now. But we need to get back to that basic belonging to see men and women coming to the Savior. And it must be biblical evangelism. An evangelism which speaks of hell. I I stress only that point. We must refuse to be intimidated. We must refuse to back off People don't know about hell. They think of God as a need meter. They need to understand that they're turning their backs on the Saviour from hell. And I must warn you that it is quite possible that in the short term this emphasis will be counterproductive. I was talking today about a Christian lady who has been involved in serving God in bringing children to a Sunday school to learn the teaching of scripture and she would collect them and she would bring them and she would teach them the Bible. One day she taught them about hell. And when she went back the next week to collect one child she was met by a very angry mother who said, my child won't be coming anymore. How dare you teach my child about such a horrible thing which is not true. And in the short term We may have to suffer for that. It may put people off. It may seem counterproductive. But in the long term, God will bless it. Hell should produce in us a renewed zeal for evangelism. If each one of us were to go away from this conference with one person in our mind and say, by God's grace, I will pray for that person daily. And as I have opportunity, I will speak to them of the Savior. I'll bring them to hear the word. I'll do all I can for their salvation. Will you do that? If you haven't been doing it. And then sixthly and lastly, hell should produce in us a humble acceptance of God's Sovereign purposes. A humble acceptance of God's sovereign purposes. And I want to divide that into two areas. First of all, regarding our present responsibility. Regarding our present responsibility. If we are not moved for the lost, now there is something terribly wrong with us. Paul could say, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for my kinsmen according to the flesh. He was filled with sorrow for those he knew who were not Christians. We should have that sorrow. We should have that grief. We should be moved for the lost. We should be zealous for them. Our responsibility is immense and inescapable. We must evangelize. We must evangelize. And nothing that I am about to say should take away from the passionate, lifelong commitment to spreading the gospel by every means in our power. And yet, and we're coming back to these ever present biblical tensions, and yet, there is a too frequent evangelical imbalance even dishonesty here. And this is the point at which many conference speakers would exert an intense emotional pressure on the people of God and would tear and rip and and rend your consciences and say, listen, if hell is real, drop everything else and spend your whole time telling people to believe in Jesus. How can you do anything else? How can you think of anything else? If there's a hell and people are going to hell, nothing else is worthwhile. And the people will be filled with a sense of guilt. And perhaps they would imagine But the man who said these words lived up to his own preaching. And they would be intimidated by his godly zeal. Friends, I cannot do that. God's will for most of you is not that you should drop everything for evangelists. If you did that, life on this earth couldn't continue. The church couldn't continue. God's will for you is to rear your families. God's will for you is to do your daily work, to serve your employer in a righteous and godly way, to serve in the church and community. We have to accept God's sovereign purposes. You do have a responsibility for other people you do but it's a limited responsibility it's a limited responsibility ultimately each individual is responsible for himself or herself if someone goes to hell it is their responsibility god says in Ezekiel 18:20 the soul who sins shall die the son shall not bear the guilt of the father Now the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. We will be guilty if we're silent. But the ultimate responsibility must rest with the individual. Friends, don't take more responsibility on yourselves than God puts on you. It'll break you. My fellow pastors, don't take more responsibility on yourself than God puts on you. It'll break you. I've seen pastors, broken, good men, sensitive men, conscientious men, men who would have died for their people. But in their very conscientiousness, they took upon themselves a burden too heavy for any mortal to bear. God is the Lord. Parents, it's hard to say this. Don't take upon yourself a responsibility that God hasn't given you. And remember that every single one of Christ's sheep will be saved. We don't need to panic. We don't need to be filled with terror that if we don't do something now for everybody we know, they will drop into hell by mistake. The Lord says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost. Some years ago in Edinburgh, Scotland, my wife and I talked to a man of 64 who had just become a Christian. His parents had been godly people. They had died 30 years earlier, heartbroken at their dissolute. Dissolute, wicked, godless son Who'd rejected every piece of advice And who'd broken his parents' hearts And that man said to us I believe I owe my conversion under God To the prayers of my father and my mother They died And they died with their son unconverted But their son was converted Now that's not a a guarantee, that's not an absolute, that's not a promise. But we have to trust God. We have to hold on to God. We have to give the ultimate responsibility to Him, even for our nearest and dearest. Because it will break you, it will break you. You can't live with it. It's that tension, isn't it? Our, Our true responsibility, our biblical responsibility, but no more to rest in God. And then third and then secondly and lastly, we have to accept humbly God's sovereign purpose regarding hell itself. And I need to be careful here in what I say. It's a terrible doctrine. It's a terrible doctrine. And we can't help feeling deeply for our lost fellow human beings and it is right that we should do so. We are commanded to love our neighbours, we are commanded to love our enemies. The most evil human being you know may be elect, you don't know that he isn't. He might seem a devil incarnate, a soul of Tarsus. He may be one of those whom God chose in eternity. And him God is going to redeem. Everybody you meet, they may be elect. We do not know. Remember Spurgeon was told by hyper-Calvinists. he said, Mr. Spurgeon, we should only offer Christ to the elect. Spurgeon said, right, you point out the elect to me and I'll offer Christ to them. I said, Well, I don't know who the elect are. And Spurgeon said, No, neither do I. We feel, and God feels, He says, I have no pleasure in the wicked. But here's another tension our natural compassion can very easily slip over into a dislike of this biblical doctrine. C.S. Lewis. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. John Stott, emotionally I find the concept intolerable and I do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their emotions or cracking under the strain. In other words, these men were saying, I wish there were no hell. Now that's understandable. That's understandable. But is it right? Is it right? Should we see hell as an embarrassing, distasteful reality? Something we really wish didn't exist? Something that we'd be glad to to forget about in heaven? And the problem with this view is that Scripture shows us the glorified saints praising God for his judgment on sin and worshipping him for the overthrow of wickedness. You are righteous, O Lord, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The saints in heaven praise God for hell. Should we? Be careful, be careful. I would guess that in a gathering of this size there are some brothers and sisters You're unbalanced in a particular direction. You're a little bit too rigid, a little bit too harsh. There's just a tinge of cruelty. In your home, in your relations with your wife, in your relations with your children, there's an iron, a sourness. If you're listening to a sermon, you're more ready. To say amen to passages that speak of wrath and judgment than passages that speak of grace and mercy. My friends, that's not good. That's not good. That's a weakness in you. That's an immaturity. Perhaps it's because you've recently come to the Reformed faith. And you're so thrilled with it. And you're so enraptured with it. And you're reacting against the shallow sentimentality and softness that you find repugnant. Be very careful. We can certainly, unreservedly, here and now, tonight, give thanks that there is a hell for Satan without any reservation, and we can go on our knees and say, Thank you, Lord God, that you have prepared flames of fire for the devil and all his angels. I'm glad he's there. I'm glad he'll be there forever and ever. I praise you, Lord, for your torment on him. I'm thinking aloud here. Can we go further? Can we tonight thank God that there's a hell for wicked people? Now I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking dogmatically here and I'm open to correction but I have to say that as I look at my own heart I cannot. I cannot. I know too much of my own sin. I know that it's only because of Christ's grace that I'm not in hell. And brethren and sisters I do not trust myself to do it in a holy way I know I will do it in heaven we will do it in heaven it's a mystery but we will praise God as we see the reprobate in hell suffering we will praise God for that we will worship God for that I would hesitate a long time before I would do it now I think it could only be a very, very holy person. A person especially sensitive. A person close to God. A person filled with the mind of Christ to do such a thing. And yet, we must realize that God will be glorified in hell. His justice will be glorified. All the injustices of this world will be cleared up. His righteous judgment will be revealed. Everything will be made right. All inequities will be swept away. And we will see the fairness and the justice of it all. God's majesty will be glorified. And all those who have raised themselves up against them in their arrogance and pride will be humbled and cast down. God's grace and love will be magnified. God will be glorified in hell. And if the glory of God means more to us than anything, and if he is glorified through hell, can we be sorry that hell exists? We cannot be. We cannot be. And in heaven we will be transformed, we will be perfect, we will be able to praise God for all that he has planned and all that he has done, including hell. Jonathan Edwards writes, it becomes the saints fully and perfectly to consent to what God doth, without any reluctance or opposition of spirit. You see how very, very careful his language is. It becomes us to consent to what God doth without any reluctance or opposition of spirit. And then he goes on. Yea, it becomes them to rejoice in everything that God sees meet to be done. I cannot yet aspire to that. That is my weakness. But we will. We will. There are many things we cannot grasp of the glories of heaven, of of hell and God's purposes. But we will. I would say to you in closing that this doctrine, like every doctrine in scripture, should lead us to worship Let us now worship. Father in heaven, forgive us for a sinful, cowardly, sentimental reluctance to think about hell as we should. Lord, we have been influenced by the jibes and mockery and objections of the world. We have been intimidated to some degree. We have felt embarrassment. Lord, this is wrong. You are the mighty and perfect God. You do all things well. You act in justice, in holiness, and in righteousness. And Lord God, we have spent these evenings considering this doctrine. But we pray earnestly, Lord, that that doctrine will now transform our lives and behavior. That we will be changed, men and women. Lord, that we will deal with sin in our own lives. That we will have a new contentedness, thankfulness and gratitude. That we will have a humility, a seriousness, a gravity in all our behavior. That we will love the Lord Jesus Christ with an ever more passionate love. And esteem his death and Calvary as worth more than the universe, Lord, that we shall have a new concern for those around us who are lost and without hope and without God, and seek to save them from the flames. Lord, that we may be filled with a humble, trustful submission, fulfilling our responsibilities but not arrogantly going beyond them. Bowing, O Lord, in reverence and worship and meekness before you, exalting and glorifying your holy name. We look forward to that day, O God, when we shall know, even as we are known, when we shall see you face to face, when your glory will be revealed in all that you have made and in all that you do. So keep us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.